First Peter chapter 2, begin in verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lust which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who have been sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king." In these seven verses, Peter gives some very practical instruction to a persecuted church. And some of this instruction is pretty challenging. I mean, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Submitting to kings and governors, or in our case, the related authorities in our day. Submit to those authorities. If that poses a challenge to you, please consider this. This letter is written around A.D. 64, just as the persecution of Christians under Nero was ramping up. Many in Peter's audience, mostly Jewish believers, have lost their homes. They've been uprooted and scattered throughout what is today modern-day Turkey. And this wave of persecution was at the hands of the very authorities to which Peter is encouraging them to submit. It's in that setting in which Peter is instructing them to live in a way that glorifies the Lord. So may this instruction be one that speaks to us on how to suffer with and for the Lord should he tarry and we be faced with similar struggles. With that as a backdrop, let's begin now in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lust which war against the soul. Beloved, we're going to hover over this word for a few minutes. In the Greek, it's dearly loved or well-loved. So they're not just loved, but they're well-loved. And Peter's reminding them of this very important truth in the midst of great persecution. He's letting them know that while they've lost so much for the gospel's sake, even loved ones, God's love for them remains. They are dearly loved. Do you know that's true of you as well this morning? Even when you're going through the most difficult of trials, when the enemy's bearing down on you, you're overwhelmed. When you're in that place, never forget that you are the Lord's beloved. You are dearly loved by the Lord. Now I realize that you may believe it's true on paper, but do you know in the intimate places of your soul that you are dearly loved by the Lord? Yes, we know according to John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So everyone's loved by him. But if you've received Jesus, you personally are not just loved, but you are dearly loved by God. You are his beloved. Solomon would capture the depth and intimacy of God's love for you in Song of Songs. This book is a love story intended in part to express to us God's love for his own and the love we can experience towards him. In chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 13, we read these words. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Can you receive that truth this morning? You are God's beloved, and he is yours. You are so precious to him. And just as it was important for Peter's audience 2,000 years ago to know this truth, it's vital for our walks with God as well. 
So we're going to read some words from the book of Ephesians that are given to believers that we might behold just how dearly loved we are. If you're born again, if you've received Jesus, you're likely familiar with these words. In fact, Pastor Will shared some of them last week. But please hear them afresh from the Lord's heart to you. Just a few verses in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, you may not feel like it, but according to what we just read, those who know Jesus at this very moment, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Jesus. You are chosen by him to be holy and without blame before him in love, You are adopted by God Almighty, and you're his sons and daughters. And if that expression of love weren't enough, this adoption was, it says, to bring you to himself. Just like any loving father, he wants you close to himself. Some of us might struggle receiving this as if somehow God does not love you as much as he loves others. And that's just fooey. So I want to say to those of you who've received Jesus that you are God's beloved, You are his dearly and well-loved child, not because of how good you've been, not because he owes you something, not because you've earned or deserve it, but you are his beloved solely because of his grace of which we just read. His grace, his favor for you, apart from any of your own merit, has made you not only accepted in the beloved, but you are a beloved one called to God himself to receive his love. If you have times in your life when you doubt his love, Just know that if or when you do, it's not the Lord making it difficult for you to know. It's your flesh at best and the enemy at worst. Because I don't know if there's anything more freeing and empowering to the soul than knowing how much God loves us. So may the Lord cause you and me too to grow in the knowledge of this great love. Amen? Amen. Verse 11 again. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. The word for beg here is an urging, it's an exhorting. In the Greek, it means to call to one side. And it refers to this act of calling someone to your side in order to give aid to that person. And just an observation here, notice that Peter's exhortation to abstain from fleshy lust isn't a distant order from a higher up, but it's Peter saying, hey, my heart comes alongside of you, urging you, hang in there, don't give in to your lust. He's saying, I come alongside of you, and I'm with you in your struggle. This is what all of us as believers are called to do for one another. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The word exhort there, it's the same word that Peter uses in his urging. Again, it means to call near to one side, to invite near so that you can give aid. And I would encourage you, when the Lord calls you to minister to someone who may be struggling with sin, don't talk at them, but come with a mindset of, I'm with you in this. I've been there, and I want to help you, brother. 
Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 11 again. He says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. Sojourner here is speaking of a foreigner. In the Greek, it speaks of one whose home is alongside. So this world isn't your home. You're just camping alongside other people. And the word for pilgrim is interesting. Weist says that it's the idea of settling down alongside pagans. So the two words together, and this is still Weist, and I quote, the words together, that is sojourners and pilgrims, those words together describe a Christian who has made his home alongside the unsaved you are a stranger to them in that you are different, unquote. And here in this passage, Peter says this difference that should be seen is that we, unlike the world, which is spiraling deeper and deeper into sin, we should abstain from fleshy lusts, he says. And these lusts, these are cravings or strong desires. They can be good or bad. And here it's obviously bad because they wage a war against us. And abstain has the idea of putting some distance between things. And it implies severing from a former association. So we're going to talk about those two things. So these believers and us, we have these former sins that we all practice before coming to Jesus. These sins are our former associates, our old habits that we once lived in, so to speak. And so often for many, it's the old habits that we formerly indulged in that call back to us. Take Samson, for instance. He had a sin issue with women, and among other things, and he kept going back to that well. He was, as James 1.14 says, driven away by his own lusts and enticed. When I think back to my first year or so as a believer, I was also driven away by my own lusts for a season. The sin that I came out of called out to me, and eventually I fell back to my sin, my old ways, my own sinful desires. And Peter says here that we're to abstain from those former associates, our fleshy lusts. Now, perhaps you struggle with some former sins this morning. Maybe a former habit, a former associate sin that occasionally or maybe often calls out to you. If so, right here in this passage, we're given some light on how to deal with that. We mentioned it a bit ago that the word abstain carries the idea of putting distance between ourselves and our sin. In other words, get far away from the influences that used to enslave you and any new sins that might be wooing you for that matter. Here's what that can look like. If you were caught up in pornography before Christ or after Christ, Perhaps you need to put some distance between yourself and that sin by having a brother monitor your internet traffic with covenant eyes or ever accountable or some other tool that helps with online purity. Maybe you should consider dumping cable TV or any media that pulls you to scroll through videos or read materials that feed your flesh in that area. If you've struggled with alcohol abuse before or during your walk with God, perhaps you put distance between you and that temptation by sharing that struggle with a brother you trust and asking them to come alongside of you as a prayer partner. Or maybe there's some secret sin which you've found some way to protect, some way to continue in it covertly. If so, I want to encourage you. Do what you need to do to abstain. Do whatever is necessary to put distance between you and that with which the enemy seeks to destroy you. And do what Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. This is obviously something we need to take seriously. And Peter makes that clear here when he tells us why we need to abstain from fleshy lust. He says, it's because we're involved in a war. Verse 11 again, 
Behold, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. That's literally a military campaign. Soul here can be the mind, the heart, the inner person. Uh, It's the core of who we are. Now, as we mentioned, these fleshly lusts, they aren't simply temptations that tug at us. They're actually weapons waging war against our soul. Our fleshy lusts are waging a campaign against our heart, our mind, and our inner man, and I would dare say our families as well. This is one of the reasons our struggle with sin can be so difficult, because our lusts are used as weapons waging war against us. And we've already looked at one way to wage this war by putting distance between ourselves and our lusts. But listen to some other ways from Scripture that speak to our battle with sin and that also aid us in putting distance between our sin and our souls. This is by no means exhaustive, just a couple things. Psalm 119.9, you probably haven't memorized. The psalmist asks, how does a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Take heed means to keep watch over, to guard, to retain, to reserve, to put a hedge around. You want to put distance between your lusts and your soul? Pay attention to what God says. Keep it as a guard to your soul. Surround yourself in it and do what it says. Psalm 119.11, for your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you need to put distance between some former sin and your soul? Then make God's word his heart, if you will. Make his heart your treasure. Hide it in your heart. Memorize it and pray it. And one of my favorite passages, which speaks directly to our warfare, specifically in our thought life and how we deal with it. Now, if if you've been attending here for any length of time, you've heard this passage taught a time or three, but just please hear it again. Don't turn there because we're going to jump to another scripture as soon as I read it. But this is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, probably the clearest example from scripture of what this looks like, bringing every thought captive is found in Luke chapter four, if you wanna turn there, Luke chapter four. Say first Peter, please. Luke chapter 4. Again, this is what we're about to see here. It's, it's what it looks like to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're going to read a lot of scripture here, so just let the Lord speak to you through his word, okay? Beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when it had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, Since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours." And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, This is from Deuteronomy 6, 
it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then in Matthew 4.11, we get a little more detail, and it says there, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now hold that thought. No deep dive here, okay? Just some observation to bring us to a specific point. Jesus is being tempted, and that temptation is targeted at his specific weakness at the moment. He's starving, first of all, and he's offered a way to relieve that hunger, which is not in line with what the Father had for him, just like any temptation. So Jesus does what 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5 says. He uses one of our weapons of warfare, God's word, to cast down arguments. He was taking captive the thoughts that were exalting themselves against the word of God. Satan gave Jesus a suggestion, and Jesus took the thought captive to the word of God, even speaking that word out loud. And then notice something that's very important for us to get our minds around. And that is, after each temptation, while Jesus is using the word of God, he's having victory in his actions, but temptation does not go away. He's in the battle. He's using the word of God. He's filled with the spirit, verse one says, but the temptation or the testing is not immediately over. And this is where we so often struggle. We need to understand that it's normal while in the heat of battle, while experiencing victory, while not giving in to temptation, it is normal to still feel the pull of our temptation. That's how it was for Jesus and that's how it is oftentimes for us. After each one of these temptations, the hunger was still there. It wasn't until some point after that last temptation that we read angels came and ministered to him. And so it can be with us in times of great temptation that we need to cleave to the Lord, staying the course, clinging to his word. And I would include staying close to the encouragement of others as we go through our challenges until such time as we've come through the testing. It's as Hebrews 10.36 says, for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you can receive the promise. The truth is when we abide in him, when we abide in his word, we're going to experience freedom. John 8, 31, 32 makes this very clear. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's in the abiding of the Lord and his word that our victory is found. It's in abiding through the struggle, cleaving to the word, where we discover that the truth does indeed make us free. And just as the angels eventually came and ministered to Jesus, as he relentlessly clung to the written word of God, so we too will experience freedom and relief on the other side of a testing or tempting. Just abide in him, abide in his word. God is faithful. Well, back to 1 Peter. Verse 11 and 12 together. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the word conduct here in verse 12, it's your way of life. It speaks of your daily behavior. It's one's whole conduct, not simply what you say, but it's representative of your character. And this conduct or character should be honorable. Now, listen to the beauty of this word honorable. It means that which is beautiful, that which is handsome, surpassing, precious, commendable, admirable, 
inherently excellent. It also carries the idea within it of providing some special benefit. Now, just a quick footnote on that. When we live honorably, not only do we benefit, but so do those around us. Our employers experience less theft. Wives and husbands have faithful spouses. Children have loving and godly parents, and so on. You get the idea. Others benefit. Lastly, regarding this word, in classical Greek, it was originally descriptive of outward form, and so it speaks of someone or something that's beautiful. And so putting this thought together, Peter urges these believers, and of course us as well, that among the Gentiles, the unsaved individuals in our sphere of influence, among them, our way of life needs to be beautiful. It needs to be excellent and precious and commendable and admirable, bringing value to others as a result. When we look at these words, they're attractive and they're noble. And all of that to say, a life lived this way is intended in part to draw attention from the unbelieving world. We want to live in such a way before the world that they see the honor in it so that when they see our character, they ultimately see the character and the beauty and the excellence of Jesus in us. Is this an area we could use some growth in? I know I can. While we don't want to beat ourselves up here, I would encourage you to pursue this kind of conduct as a matter of prayer and obedience to the Lord in 2024. What we say or do before the world is no small thing. And then right here, Peter tells us why in verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. God's glory is the ultimate goal here. We're going to talk about that later. First, notice it says when the world speaks evil of you, not if they do. The world's going to speak against us at some point if we're walking in obedience to the Lord's word. They're even going to look at the good that you do as a believer and they're going to call it evil. That's what Peter says. They're going to speak against us as though we're the evildoers. And they're doing it now. They're even calling good evil these days, yes? Isaiah 5 verse 20. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Well, that's just what the unbelieving world does. So don't be put off by the fact that the world is going to speak evil of you. Actually, many in the world are going to hate you if you love Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So just a footnote on that. While we will be hated for Jesus' name's sake, may the world's hatred of us never be because we're honorary or mean. May our conduct, our gentle, our sweet, loving, admirable conduct be always honorable for Jesus' sake. Verse 12 again, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may glorify by, excuse me, they may by your good works, which they observe. We're going to stop there. The word observe means to view carefully. It's present tense, so this is something that unbelievers are continually doing. All the folks in your life at work and home, they're closely inspecting your life and our deeds over a period of time. And then notice that the desired outcome of them observing your good conduct is that they glorify the Lord in the day of visitation. So I have a question. In your dealings with the world, is your desire that they see your good works so that they can glorify the Lord? And I ask this question because 
We're in times when the love of many believers is growing cold. And so it's not uncommon for Christians to have attitudes towards non-believers that happily write them off. For instance, we see all the sin running rampant in society and all the misinformation and untruth being foisted on our children. And I think sometimes, instead of living in a way that wins the world with our honorable conduct, that is our beautiful, handsome, surpassing, precious, commendable, admirable, inherently excellent behavior, instead of winning their hearts with such conduct, we instead can show conduct that's unbecoming a believer. For example, shouting people down or posting hateful comments online, or reading the condemning comments and rants of others and feeling good about it and posting a thumbs up. All of this is contrary to living honorably as Peter instructs us. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter four that it's the kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. So be encouraged to live a life honoring to the Lord that the world might see the beauty and the preciousness and the admirableness and the excellence of Jesus in you and so glorify him. Verse 13 and 14 together. Therefore, or in light of the fact that we need to abstain from fleshly lusts, that we need to live honorably before the world, that they might eventually glorify God. Here's one of the ways we live honorably among Gentiles. Verse 13, again, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So first thing we wanna note here is the Lord's desire, okay, his heart, his desire, is that the world see our submission to ordinance of man and that the world sees our submission to authority. This is part of the good conduct that they need to see. So please hear this. When we refuse to submit to authority, we're working against the desire of God. Please let that sink in. We're working against God's desire that the unsaved come to know him by observing our honorable behavior. So it's pretty important that we know what it is to submit to authority and that we act accordingly. And to that end, the word submit in verse 13 means to yield to governance or authority, to place yourself in subjection. And this is voluntary, by the way, not voluntary in the sense that you can choose not to submit to every ordinance of man and that would be okay with the Lord. But it's, instead, it's voluntary in the sense that we need to willingly, voluntarily yield to governance or authority and place ourselves in subjection. The idea is to put yourself in an attitude of submission. I'm gonna read something that will be very hard to hear if you struggle in this area, but may the Lord help us to receive it for his sake. This is our Greek scholar, Ken Weiss again. Regarding this submission, it means, and I quote, to put yourself in the attitude of submission. The exhortation is not merely to obey ordinances, but to create and maintain that attitude of heart, which will always lead one to obey them. Hear that again. This submission to every ordinance of man and to rulers is to put yourself in the attitude of submission. The exhortation is not merely to obey ordinances, but to create and maintain that attitude of heart, which will always lead one to obey them. In other words, we're not submitting an action while at the same time being disrespectful and worried to an authority. For example, you get pulled over by one of my sons, two sons who are cops, say, do you know Mike? Just kidding. Um, 
they say something like driver's license and registration, please, and you pull it out and you thrust it towards them and you say something snarky. Now, you may be doing what the officer asked, but that's not submission as this verse is speaking of. This is to be a submission of our attitude as well. You see, our laws do not require a submission of our attitude, but our Savior does. Our laws do not require a submission of our attitude, but our Savior does. Now, an ordinance, that speaks of human instruction, uh, laws of the land. And notice the word every there, where it says every ordinance. Come to find out it actually means every. Now, we'll talk in a little bit about ordinances that compel us to violate the word of God. But first, I'm guessing there are some laws and ordinances of man that some of us struggle with, yes? Maybe there are some laws that don't violate the word of God, but they don't make any sense to us, yes? Well, those laws are covered under this word every. So a question, and please don't answer out loud. How is your attitude towards every ordinance of man? Are there some that get under your skin? If you're like me, then yes, there are some that get under your skin. But there's an answer here as to why we need to do this, which, if we get settled in our hearts, could assist us greatly. And that is, we submit ourselves, it says, for the Lord's sake. Now, we're going to discuss that later, as I said earlier. For now, please look at verse 13 and 14 again. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. So we're going to pause there. A few years ago, I heard a pastor, a well-known pastor, say that passages of Scripture like this one, and also in Romans that we read in our Scripture reading about submitting to authority, they, those don't apply to us if the authorities themselves are ungodly. And that's just not true. Some Christians may feel that they do not need to submit to every ordinance of man, nor submit to authorities for that reason. But the only permission we have from the Lord to not submit to every ordinance of man is when we must choose between obeying God or obeying man. It's when a law of man goes against the command of God that we obey the Lord above that law. In Acts 5, we have an exchange where we see this, uh, the disciples dealing with this kind of a situation. There in Acts 5, verse 28 and 29, the high priest said to Peter and to the others, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And there you have it. We refuse to submit to an ordinance of man when that ordinance is requiring us to disobey the Lord. That's it. Are we having fun yet? Because... If being in subjection to every ordinance of man seems like too much, what about being in submission to an actual authority, to a person in authority? Please look again at verse 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors. Please don't answer out loud. How is your attitude towards those individuals who are in authority in the United States of America? I have an observation from our day. Now, you all know this. You may even struggle with this yourself, as I have. So I share this observation in kindness in hopes that we might examine our hearts in this area, causing us to walk close to the heart of God. And the observation is this. 
We're living in a time when Christians, in Jesus' name, are disobeying laws and ordinances of man, and therefore, those persons who make said ordinances, even when said ordinances, or excuse me, said ordinance is not asking us to disobey God. But check this out. Even while living under wicked leaders, Daniel, Joseph, and Nehemiah, they were in submission to those wicked men. And when did Daniel not obey? Only when told he couldn't pray to God. When did Joseph not obey Potiphar or Pharaoh? We actually have no record that I can think of where Joseph disobeyed his pagan authorities. In fact, neither Daniel, Joseph, or Nehemiah ever spoke anything ill of their pagan kings. And further, they spoke blessing to them. Does O King live forever sound familiar? They weren't being sarcastic. They spoke that same blessing of greeting to the king that non-believers spoke. They honored their pagan kings, their evil pagan kings. But what are we tempted to do? And what do believers actually do sometimes? We, in our culture particularly, many believers all but curse our authorities and sometimes we do curse them. I wonder if when Nehemiah and Daniel would say these words, O king, live forever, if there would be some of those in the crowd that would say, well, look at him, just trying to appease the king. What a coward. That's an evil man. I hate that man. I think some today would say that of a Christian who chooses not to speak ill of a leader or who chooses to speak a blessing on them, as Daniel did. Now, I realize this can be a challenge, and perhaps some of you may disagree, but I can't get past the examples of these three men, these very godly men, Daniel, David, Joseph, in how they addressed their evil authorities. Are there times when, as a church, we can call out the sin of our leaders in our nation? Perhaps. But even then, for me personally, given how intense in a fleshy way that I often feel about some of these folks, I need to check that desire with the Lord before I open my mouth. And I would encourage you to do the same because we must never speak in order to satisfy a desire to exact our own wrath or bitterness towards a particular leader. Again, we must never speak for the purpose of satisfying a desire to exact our own wrath or bitterness towards our leaders. I mean, even if they demand of us that we disobey the Lord, even in that case, just like Daniel, we submit up and until the point of being asked to disobey God, and then we respectfully disobey by choosing not to go against God's word, as did Daniel. There's no reason to add personal feelings of hatred toward an authority. No godly reason, anyway. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can't be involved in political process, even working to change laws and vote for those who love the Lord or who honor his word. This is a blessed privilege of our system. Also, I'm not saying that we can't use the laws of our political system as citizens. Paul the Apostle, as a Roman citizen, used Roman law to avoid being bound without due process. What I am saying is this. Once the authorities are established, once laws are made, we Christians cannot put aside this instruction of Scripture to submit to every ordinance of man, nor can we put aside the instruction to submit to those persons who are in authority over us. Now, if this challenges you as it does me, in verse 13, finally, we see why we're to choose this radical submission. Verse 13 says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. 
Church, we do it for our Lord. It is not about us. It is not about our comfort. We submit to every ordinance of man and to the persons who have authority over us for the sake of our Savior and King who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I say none of this at you, as I also need to remind myself that the Lord desires the authorities in our lives to be saved because he loves them too. They're included in John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, again, that goes for those leaders with whom we may struggle. The Lord loves them. Continuing on in verse 12. The end of verse 12 says that these rulers are sent by the Lord for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. That's why the Lord's appointed authority, to keep order, and part of that order is to punish evil. Now, you might be thinking, but many of these folks are way off in regard to how they punish evil, as well as what they even call evil. So what does this mean when the Lord calls authorities to act righteously and they don't? How does that affect us? Well, just as we noted with Daniel, Joseph, and Nehemiah, Their rulers were wicked, yet, according to Scripture, those leaders were appointed to enact punishment and reward. Yet, they were very wrong so often, and even wicked in their enacting out of their judgments. So how do we deal with that? So a thought occurred to me today, and I'm not good once I go off my notes, okay? I mean, I'm not good anytime, but something came to my mind this morning I want to share with you, and hopefully it'll come out clear. How many of you are parents? Okay, most of us here. Do you ever say to your children, there are going to be times when I'm disciplining you or when I'm in a bad mood that I'm just going to act honorary. And I'm going to be, sometimes even my character is going to be ungodly. At those times, you don't have to honor me. You don't have to respect me. And you can even speak ill of me. Would you ever do that? No. Because you expect your children to respect you And you teach your children to respect authority, even if that authority is acting just like you. Right? Okay, I got it out. I would just say this. The fact that those who enforce laws and make laws that we don't like, or even laws that are evil, that's in God's hands. They're given that authority for good, and they'll give an account to God one day. Meanwhile, our job And I would say our calling is to submit to every ordinance of man for our Lord's sake. And that until such time as we're asked by an authority to disobey God. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So Peter says, this is God's will. That is, this is his desire. This is his pleasure. God's desire, among other things, what gives him pleasure here is that the good that we do unto him and for his sake will ultimately silence the ignorance of the foolish. That silencing may come now. They may get saved through your good behavior or it may come in the judgment, but all eventually will bow. For now, let's walk in obedience to the Lord. Let's do his will, his desire. Let's do what brings pleasure to him by walking in submission to every ordinance of man for his sake and for the sake of his kingdom. And do remember, eventually all of this foolishness, guys, it's all going to be silenced at his hand. Verse 15 and 16. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, 
but as bondservants of God. So as free here means emancipated, just as a slave would be set free. It's unfettered. That's what we are. We're unfettered. As believers, we're former slaves of sin, but now we're set free. We no longer are chained by the power of sin, the guilt of sin, and the shame of it. Now, using our liberty as a cloak for vice is using this Christian freedom to excuse compromise or to provide license for sin. Galatians 5.17 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so Peter also says, verse 16, that we're free, but we're not to use this freedom, this liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. In other words, indulging our flesh is not what our freedom is for. What our freedom in Christ is to be used for is to aid us in our submission to Christ and his, as his bond slaves, it aids us in our submission and our service to others as well. Here Galatians 5, 13 again. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, our freedom in Christ is not given so that we might live as we please, but our freedom in Christ should be yielded back to him and then aid us in how we serve each other. And verse 17 gives us some detail as to what that looks like. We as free people, yet bondservants of God, are to, verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So the first thing Peter tells us in regard to how we use our freedom to serve is we honor all people. Honor means to attribute worth or merit to a person or to a thing. Now, we have a tendency, of course, to honor those who honor us, or we honor some because of their status in society. We have a tendency to elevate those who have reached a place of greatness by the world standards, a favorite athlete, an actor, a CEO. Um, But our standard is much higher We're to honor all men. To honor someone, to treat them with worth and merit is to see them and value them as a person created in the image of God, but also to recognize that our Lord loves them just as much as he loves us. And this should be our general demeanor towards others, that of honor. Here are some practical ways that you can honor all men. You can do so by treating all men with kindness as our Lord does. Luke 6, verse 35 and 36 for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. You can honor all by being forgiving towards all men. See Jesus looking down from the cross on those who drove nails through his hands, asking the Father to forgive them. You can also honor all by loving all. See John three sixteen for the third time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In being kind, forgiving, and loving to all men, we're honoring all men. And honoring all men, attributing worth to them, is an area where we've fallen so short in our day, yet it is God's command to us. Honor all men. Well, the next way a bondservant of Jesus uses his freedom rightly is to love the brotherhood. And love here, of course, is God's agape love. That is, we're to love other believers unconditionally. We're to love each other sacrificially. And this love isn't based on how we feel towards one another, but it's to be done in obedience as an act of one's will. One commentator put it this way. He said, since this love is unconditional, it is dispensed even if it is not received or returned. Hmm. 
This love is dispensed even if it's not received or returned back to you. That's a great description of what the Lord did on our behalf. According to what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he died, Jesus did what he didn't feel like doing. And he did it for the entire world, knowing his love would not be received or returned by some or by many, in fact. And this is how we're to love each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to love and continue loving, even if that love is not received by the one we're loving or returned back to us from that one. So a question, another one of those don't answer out loud things. Have you ever struggled with how you feel towards other believers or even some of those with whom you attend church? Everyone looks straight ahead of you right now. Okay. I would encourage you, regardless of your feelings, be obedient to this command by doing acts of love even when you don't feel like it, just like Jesus did. And also pray, asking the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit because God's agape love is a fruit of his spirit. And then get about the business of loving each other. Imagine the effect on our testimony on the world if we loved each other regardless of whether or not it was ever received or returned. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, and next we're instructed to fear God. The Greek word for fear here is speaking of having a deep respect or reverence. It's present imperative, so it's, it's a command that we're, we're to make this a habit of our life. Whenever we have a command or any instruction in Scripture, the directive, of course, is to just do it and not to wait for a feeling to do it. And just like agape love, fearing God is something we're commanded to do regardless of feelings. We'll see how that works in a second. But first, just to say it out loud, this is not to say that fear and reverence of God can't or doesn't invoke feeling, but if you're waiting for a feeling to teach you the fear of God or to cause you to live in fear of God, you could be waiting a long time. I've shared this before, but it applies here, so I'm going to share it again. It's a little detailed, so I'm going to try to keep us focused, okay? We know that according to Proverbs 129, that the fear of God involves making choices. That verse speaks of those who hated knowledge. It says in that verse that they did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now, in that proverb, the people he's talking about were delighting in scorn, they were disdaining God's counsel, and they didn't listen to his rebuke. And then finally it says that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So again, the fear of God is a choice that could have been made. So keep that thought. Now in Proverbs 8.13, we're actually told what the choice is that we must make that is equivalent to fearing God. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. They weren't making that choice. It says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's not to have a feeling about evil, but we choose to hate evil. So here's a simple, practical example of how we choose the fear of the Lord, and this is how I make application in fearing God in my life. When I'm tempted, what I do is I pray, usually out loud, something to the effect of, Lord, I choose the fear of you by hating my sin. I choose to hate evil. I submit to fearing you over my sin and over my feelings about my sin. And just an encouraging footnote on that. Psalm 147.11 says these words, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. And so may it be a blessing to you knowing that when you make the choice to hate your sin, regardless of how you feel, that your heavenly father is pleased with you. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, 
fear God, and lastly, Peter says, honor the king. As a reminder, honor means to attribute worth or merit to someone. This use of the word here, it's, it's in the present tense, so we're to habitually and continually be honoring, and that is, in this case, be continually and habitually attributing worth and merit to our leaders. As we've discussed earlier, earlier on, the, honoring our political leaders can be a real challenge, but as we begin to wrap up our thoughts and as the worship team comes up, I don't want to encourage you here on how you can begin to do this. One way to honor all of our leaders is to do for them what the Lord requires of us in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. The Lord, through Paul, instructs us with these words. He says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. So if you struggle in this area, this is the place where you can begin honoring our leaders. You and me too, we can commit to praying for our leaders and for our country and being thankful to God for them. And perhaps in those moments when you read about something they did or said that bothers you or something that they do or they say that goes against the word of God, listen to this. Don't take the easy road of criticism and cursing and being demeaning. Instead, take the high road of obedience to the Lord and pray for that man or that woman that they get saved. Seems simple enough, yes? And remember, that's God's desire for them to be saved and for you to pray for them. And in doing so, you're honoring them and you're honoring the Lord. Let's all stand. Lord, thank you for the challenge that your word is to us. Thank you, Lord, just for your holiness, how different you are than us. Lord, would you help us in this area as a church to be those who submit to you, submit to your word, and who submit to and honor our authorities? Lord, would you help us to be those whose lives are honorable? Lord, that when people see the beauty of you, the admirableness of you in us, Lord, that we would live such that way, Lord, that they would come to you through our testimony. And then, Lord, not to forget those if, at the beginning here, Lord, who have, if anyone's struggling with some sin, Lord, as uh, we mentioned, Lord, I pray that you would bring alongside to them a friend that can assist them, Lord, in their struggle. Lord, thank you for this, your word this morning. May it do in us, Lord, whatever it is you intend. In Jesus' name, amen.